Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3 and stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 through 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones... God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, do whatever work you want to do in us and through us for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be like me. You love Jesus. You love the Word of God. You love the Gospel. And you desire, you deeply desire to share the truth with others. But somewhere in between the desire and the actual doing, something goes wrong. There's failure to communicate. Most of the time, there's not a great explanation as to why. You somehow just lose courage to do what you know God wants you to do. You chicken out. And you talk about anything and everything but Jesus. The sports, the kids, the coming election, work. And you pass up the opportunity to impact someone's spiritual life and eternity. There was once a man so consumed with the Word of God and Jesus. And he was actually able to seal the deal. And if there's one thing that stands out about John the Baptist, it was that he was a bold servant of God. He was bold. He was courageous. He didn't just want to speak boldly. He did. He was unafraid to speak the truth in love. Sometimes when we meet a person like that, we're taken aback by how bold and upfront they are. We're wary, suspicious. We even think they're arrogant. Some people are. But being bold doesn't mean you're arrogant any more than being humble means you're weak. You don't have to be loud and obnoxious. You can be bold and quiet. You can be bold and gentle. You can and should be. God wants you to be 
humble and bold. Humble and bold. Boldness is courage. Courage is being unafraid to speak uncomfortable truths. To do what God calls you to do. To speak what is unpopular and inconvenient. Unafraid of what others think. Uh, No fear of man who brings a snare. Now in Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, we were introduced to John the Baptist. He was sent by God. He lived a simple life. And he made an impact. He was a humble forerunner to Jesus. By the way, Andrew Maud drew those pictures a couple weeks ago after that sermon. But in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, you see the boldness of the man, his courage. His was a voice of conscience. He spoke with mercy, he spoke with grace, and with great clarity. He didn't shy away from the truth. There was no failure to communicate with John the Baptist. Boldness is revealed in John's talking points. His message, the main gist of his preaching. In this political season, you hear a lot of talking points. It's the message a person or a group consistently gives. What they consistently present. John had talking points, so do we. What were John's? Well, the first thing John did was that he rebuked false security. He rebuked false security. He corrected faulty thinking. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, we know that he was baptizing people at the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. And he spoke to them. And he rebuked their false security. Now Josephus estimated that there were about 6,000 Pharisees in operation around the time of Herod the Great. They legalistically fixated on external rules and regulations instead of focusing on internal spiritual transformation. That was their problem. They trusted in themselves. Those were the Pharisees. Sadducees, on the other hand, were were those who denied the supernatural, such as the resurrection, such as the existence of angels. Sadducees rejected human tradition. They rejected legalism. They were not in league with the Pharisees on that account. The Sadducees were wealthy and they controlled the temple. Now the Pharisees were separatists. Thought they were better than everybody else. The Sadducees were conformists. They were compromisers. The two groups had little in common, except that they both opposed Jesus. Verse 7, John the Baptist says to them, you brood of vipers. There was a little animosity going on. You, you, You offspring of poison snakes. 
Strong words. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who tipped you off? Go with me back one book to the last book of the Old Testament, to Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1. God says this, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is Jesus, by the way. But, you, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, so they may be present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. There will be a painful process that will go on. Wrath is coming. Now he, he asked them, who warned you to flee? He called them poison viper snakes. It, it, picture snakes escaping from the fields as harvesting is done. Coming out of their holes and fleeing. Why were they like snakes? By trusting in themselves instead of in God. And leading others to do the same, they were in essence killing those they were supposed to help. Vipers were known as mother killers. They, vipers would turn around and kill their own mothers. See, they should have pointed them to the truth. But instead they fed them lies. Poisonous lies that led to death, not life. Spiritually speaking. That's what happened. And they were hypocritical. They were coming to baptism pretending repentance. They were coming for baptism without true repentance. Can't do that. You see, John wasn't afraid to mix it up with the religious establishment. He tells them in verse 8, Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. You want to be baptized? Show me the repentance. Look with me at Romans chapter 2. We know that the kindness of God leads us to change our minds about ourselves and about God and to turn to Him. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it says this, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. What the word of God says. He says, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, because a truly, a truly changed heart will be evidenced by a truly changed life. If they were really repentant, there would be a noticeable change. You'd be able to see something different. In verse 9, he says, And do not suppose that you can say, Hey, Abraham's our father. Don't hide behind the smoke screen of Abraham is our father. 
See, their self-delusion was in thinking that they were guaranteed entrance into heaven because they were related to Abraham. John shows how ridiculous that, that line of reasoning is. God could use rocks to produce children to Abraham if he wanted to. Don't place your hope in biological connections. Look at John chapter 3. Jesus' response to to Nicodemus, who had come to him to ask him a few questions. John chapter 3, Jesus makes it very, very clear how you are to enter into the kingdom of God, how you are to be right with God. John chapter 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, Jesus said this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or born from above, born from God, born spiritually, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus uh, comes back with the question, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot go again into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He's thinking he's speaking of, of physical birth. But Jesus answered in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physically, and the Spirit, spiritually, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the Jews were relying upon physical birth and relationships. And God says, you've got to be born from above. You've got to be born spiritually. Don't assume you're in with God because of your heritage. See, most Jews in that day were under the assumption, faulty, as it was, the assumption that they'd automatically enter heaven. They'd automatically enter the, the kingdom. They thought wrath and judgment was, was only for non-Jews. Many believed that, that Abraham himself would sit at the gates of hell just in case any Jew got sent there and he would deliver them. That was their, that was their faulty view. To anyone who comes... To God on their own merits or another person's merits will be denied. You can only come through the merits of Jesus Christ. So the first thing you see John doing is that he, he rebukes false security. Don't trust that you're a relative of Abraham. That'll do nothing for you. Now the second thing John did was that he, he warned them of coming calamity. Look at verse 10. You see, oh, by the way, this is just not popular, is it? John the Baptist was not speaking a popular message. (laughs) But he was speaking the truth. And this is what God wanted him to say. Verse 10, he says, the axe, the axes are used for cutting things down. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. Irreversible. Cut down. And thrown into the fire. Burned. Irreversible. Now, he's warning them of future judgment. He is sounding the alarm loud and clear. There's no sugarcoating on his message. There's no uh, soft peddling it. The axe was an analogy in the Old Testament for God's irreversible judgment. The warning is that every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be cut down and burned. Fire is symbolizing judgment. See, God was preparing to do away with Israel's dead religion. Israel's legalistic 
religion could not produce the good fruit of the Spirit. So anyone who didn't want to be cut down had to demonstrate true repentance. Now, why did John rebuke and warn? Was he hateful? You do that nowadays, you're seen as hateful, right? Intolerant, hateful. Why did John rebuke and warn? It was because he loved people. He cared. He loved God more than being liked. He spoke the truth in love and left the results and the consequences up to God. See, you sleep best when truth is told, don't you? You sleep best when the truth is out in the open. And the most loving thing to do is to tell someone when they're in danger. We know that. But our culture today is in love with tolerance. Many of us have bought into that system of thought. You see something not morally or ethically right? Don't say anything about it. That would be unloving. That would be hateful. See, the loving thing to do is to let anyone do anything they want, whatever they want, regardless. That's anything but loving. It's a smokescreen for ignoring truth. It is, it is something we hide behind and not have to talk about uncomfortable things or be rejected by someone who disagrees with us. I've been in Niagara Falls. You may have seen that place too. It's a dangerous place to be in a boat, in, in the water, above the falls. And let's just say that you saw a party boat coming by you, and, and it's, you know, oh, a couple hundred yards away from the, the edge of the falls. Now, would this be the, the tolerant thing to do, right? You see them going towards the falls. Hey, how y'all doing? Have a great day. Great day for a party. That's ridiculous. You are going to do everything within your power to tell them, stop, turn around. You're going to go over the edge. You're going to perish. That's the most loving thing to do. That's love. Now, John did something else. He didn't just rebuke their false security. He didn't just warn them of coming calamity, which was the most loving thing to do. But he acknowledged Christ's superiority. Christ's superiority. Verses 11 and 12. You see, since his primary purpose was to prepare the way for the coming king, the coming Messiah, John told of his greatness, of this, of this coming one, who went so far beyond him in greatness and, and, and um, authority that John didn't even feel worthy to, to stoop down and do the most menial task that a servant in those days would do, which would be untying the laces of the sandals or carrying the sandals. He did not feel even worthy to do that. He knew that Jesus was so far superior to him. See, some people, remember, some people thought John was the Messiah. He's like, no, no, no. That's not me. I'm just a voice. Just a voice. See, he was aware of his own limitations. He was aware of his place. In verse 11, here's what he says. As for me, and what he does here is he contrasts his baptism with Jesus' baptism. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Okay? Can't save you. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
It's a whole different kind of baptism. Now, that could mean one of two things, the, the Holy Spirit and fire. It could mean that those who believe would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Those who disbelieved would be baptized with the fires of judgment in hell. Okay? Heaven and hell. The other way to look at it is that, that the Holy Spirit would baptize with his fire of purification. All right, whichever way you want to look at it, to John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit was how God identified his people, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 Here's what Paul says. He says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what gains you entrance into the kingdom of God, into the, into the body of Christ, not baptism with water. You're supposed to be baptized after you come to faith in Christ. That's the biblical mode. But first, you're immersed in the Holy Spirit. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing. It's the first blessing of the Christian life. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Identifying you as one of God's own. Now, verse 12, John says his winnowing fork is in his hand. That was a shovel-like, excuse me, a fork-like shovel that you would take grain and throw it into the wind, throw the grain into the wind, so that the wheat and the chaff would be separated. The wheat being the kernels of pure grain, the chaff being all the excess debris. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Think, look how focused on Jesus this verse is. Seven times. Jesus is referred to. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear, clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn because he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's all about Jesus and what he will do with his own. Reminds us a lot of John chapter 10. Go there with me. John chapter 10, in the, in the context of, of the good shepherd... The good shepherd knows his sheep and and they hear his voice and they follow him. They follow him. What does he say in John chapter 10? Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me and I give eternal life to them. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. This is what Jesus is going to do with his own. But look what he will do with those who are not his own. Look at verse 12, very end of the, very end of the verse. And the chaff, representing those who are not belonging to Jesus in that day, you're alive right now and you can hear these words, there is still hope. Right? You can still come to faith in Christ. 
even right this moment, believing in his finished work that he died on the cross for our sins, paying our penalty that we could never pay, to give us something that we could never deserve, eternal life, peace with God. But the chaff is going to get burned up with unquenchable fire. It's a fire that will never go out. We know a little bit about fires in Southern California. We've been through a few. They ultimately get put out. The fires of hell will never go out. Never. Unquenchable. Now, it's very significant that John was the first prophetic voice to be heard in Israel in 400 years. Because God's silence showed his displeasure with his people. Tragic as it was, though, they didn't notice the silence. They kept doing the same things they'd been doing. Their rules replaced relationship with God. And into that context, the prophet John came, and his message was really, really simple. God was seeking a relationship with his people, and they needed to realize that. Their meaningless rituals didn't please God. That's why John would not let the religious leaders get baptized until they showed the marks of true repentance. They came for baptism. They didn't get dunked. Once, twice, or three times. It didn't happen. He prevented them. Because there was no repentance. What there was needed was for humility to be able to recognize they really needed God. They needed the Savior. So John was willing to rebuke the false security of the religious people of his day. He was unafraid to warn them of the coming calamity that would come upon them if they didn't turn. And he acknowledged God's greatness, Christ's superiority. And his bold declarations were just what was needed. His talking points were just what was needed at that time. Well, we live in a time where people are wary of biblical truth. And some who claim to believe deny the truth. And if we're going to be bold servants of God, we're going to need to step up to the plate. You can't be timid and fearful but bold and confident in who God is and what he wants to do and who he made you to be and engage the culture in which you live. You can't do that by isolating from the culture. You also can't do that by letting yourself be inundated by the culture and fully immersing yourself in it for that matter. You do it by interacting in a redemptive way in building bridges with people and focusing on what matters to God. Focusing on what's important. And being a humble, bold servant of God will cost you. Will cost you something. If you want to be like everyone else and be liked by everyone, this isn't for you. Um, it's... It's the idea of of being willing to be stretched as well as refocused. Of being willing to honestly assess the substance of your talking points. 
See, our talking points are the message we give to the world in our sphere of, of operation, to the people within our context, our family, our, our block, our neighborhood, our, our marketplace, our workplace, our, our classroom, what we say to those around us. What are your talking points? Think about it for a minute. What are your talking points? Not the ones you want to share, but the ones you really do speak. What are they? Do they have to do with sports? Mine often do. Leisure? Family? Politics? Economics? How about nothing at all? You just don't engage with people. You don't like people. We're living in a culture that desperately needs those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God to tell them the truth. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, and to to, uh, live and speak the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Specifically, There are some things, though, that we're going to need to rebuke and correct. There are some things that we'll need to warn about. There are some things we need to acknowledge. So let's look at that. In terms of our talking points, in terms of rebuking, it's a strong word. If you like the word correcting, then you can use that. Uh, But you need to be unafraid to address the false securities in your own life and, and, and as well as our culture. Don't trust your heritage to save you. It won't, but find your security in Jesus. That's the talking point. Find your security in Jesus. Because if you find your security in anyone or anything else, it will ultimately consume you, overtake you, and destroy you. That's the truth. Find your security in Jesus, not in money, not in relationships, not in accomplishments. See, true security is not found in what you possess but in what possesses you. Any security apart from Jesus is false. It is unsteady. It is ultimately enslaving. It's conditional. See, part of the process is helping people not fall prey to common pitfalls. There is the trap of license that leads to nominalism. Compromise. License is anything goes, doing whatever is right in your own eyes, no evidence of conversion, no intent to do God's will, no desire to please Him. Nominalism is the result of immersion in a culture without regard for what pleases God. It's like the Sadducees. The Sadducees were this way. The Sadducees were licentious. And it turned into nominalism. What's the least I can get away with? What's the least I can get in to heaven with? It's the person who asked that question. What's the least I can do to get by? Rather than how much can I give because of how much Jesus loves me. It's thinking you're okay with God because you said a prayer once. 
or because you call yourself a Christian. See, that person may be a Christian in name only. No lifestyle to back it up. God calls that faith into question. Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? Jesus said, if anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself, repudiate yourself, reject yourself, and take up your cross and follow me. People think they got fire insurance, so they're covered. Like the Sadducees who ran the temple. Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. The licentious, by the way, are arrogant. There is an arrogance like the Sadducees who read that temple, their security is that they're in charge. They only have to live up to their own standards, their own expectations. And that brand of Christianity is so popular today. It's a false gospel. It's not a biblical one. No change of life is necessary. No change of attitude is necessary. Just accept the free grace offered and keep on living like the rest of the world. That cheapens grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the dichotomy between cheap grace and costly grace in the cost of discipleship. Here's what he said. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will sell all he has. Gladly. It's the kingly rule of Christ. The call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. But in 2008, it's popular to present a Jesus that winks at sin. That coddles you instead of calling you to die to yourself. Who just wants you to feel good about yourself. That's cheap grace. That's the Jesus of culture, not the Jesus of the Bible. So there's that trap of license that leads to, um, to uh, what does it lead to? Nominalism. <laughs> um, you know, you put the word nominalism in your notes and, and spell check comes up on it. So uh, Then there's also another trap, the trap of legalism, just like the Pharisees had, that leads to syncretism. Another spell check word. Syncretism. Legalism replaces a relationship with Jesus with rules. Syncretism is mixing several things together. All right? It's Jesus plus. Jesus plus my efforts. Jesus plus my good works. Jesus plus my baptism. Jesus plus my giving. Jesus plus my ministry. That's what's going to get me to heaven. Oh, no, it won't. See, like the Pharisees, the legalistic are insecure. And their, their, their system is based on pride and performance, which leads uh, to despair or, or, or even arrogance if you do everything you think you need to do. 
But you must be willing to say only Jesus Christ saves. Only Jesus saves. Good works can't make you right with God or get you to heaven. Scripture reveals a better way in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, not as a result of works. It's the gift of God. Nobody can boast, right? See, God's grace is so much better than the human error of license or legalism that leads to delusion and leads to slavery. God's grace is incomparable. It is immeasurable. It is incomprehensible. It is irresistible. God's grace is so good. But legalism and license are both wickedness because man is at the center of those two systems. They might be on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're both man-centered versus being Christ-centered. Now let's talk about warning. How about our talking points as regards to warning? You also need to, rem- to be willing to warn people about judgment. I know it's not popular, but it is biblical. That God's judgment is coming, and the message we need to give is this. There is a difference between faith and unbelief. Well, some people will tell you, there's no difference. It doesn't matter what I believe. Yes, it does. If you are of faith, like Abraham, the believer, you'll be judged on Christ's merits. If you're unbelieving, you'll be judged by yours. What do you want to be clinging to when that time comes? Those who don't believe have a totally different mindset. Theirs is independence versus dependence. Fear not faith. Self not God. And there's a totally different outcome to their life. It's death not life. It's hell not heaven. See the destiny of one is vastly different than the destiny of another. There is a difference between faith and unbelief. Don't let anybody tell you any different. And and it is our duty to lovingly point that out. Lovingly point that out. Last thing I want to mention is that there is something you'll need to acknowledge. That our talking point in terms of acknowledgement is this, that Jesus is superior to anyone or anything. Above all, acknowledge Christ's greatness. Highlight His position of prominence. That he is preeminent, that he is in first place, that he is of first importance. And you will also want to point out his sufficiency to save and his ability to lead. His sufficiency to save and his ability to lead. We know that only God in Christ saves and only God in Christ can can lead you and guide you in the right way in life. Jesus doesn't leave us as orphans. He walks with us every step of the way. As we are saved by grace, so we live by grace, so we serve by grace. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing in terms of salvation or growth in Christ, sanctification. In conclusion, I want to ask a little question here. Do you think that we all need to be just like John the Baptist? Of course not. He was who he was, and God made him unique, right? But there are some things he did, and some things we can learn from his life about how God wants to use us. Certainly. Definitely. See, but being a bold servant of God is not for the faint of heart. 
There is an opportunity to speak truth. And at the same time, the temptation to run from it. Ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, there is a time to stay silent. There is a time to speak. There were times that Jesus did and didn't. Jesus, when he was being reviled, did not open his mouth so that someday we could speak out boldly in his name. Don't ask, you know, who am I to do that? Who am I to speak out boldly in Jesus' name? God made your mouth. It's really so simple. Give him Jesus. Just give him Jesus. See, John the Baptist was a herald. He wasn't a lecturer. He was a preacher. He came to passionately exhort with the goal of honoring Jesus Christ with obedience and with trust. He engaged their minds as well as their hearts with the urgent proclamation of peace with God through the blood of Christ's cross with instructions for people to turn to God. As John Stott put it, with a summons to men to repent, to lay down their arms and humbly to accept the offered pardon. That's our talking point. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you, by your grace, would would help us not to be afraid to speak boldly of spiritual things. Specifically, and most importantly, the things of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.